Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. The Can We Please Talk podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcast. That's right, Mike. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, YouTube, Downcast. Nick, 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 I just said it's available wherever they get their podcast. That covers all of it, man. I know, but I kind of like listing them all out. It just <laughs> makes it feel like a lot more. It does make it feel like a lot more. All right. Like Nick said, Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, all of that. Check out our show. Give us a follow or subscribe. Leave us a five-star review and comment in the comment section. Check us out on IG, Twitter, TikTok, at Can We Please Talk Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back. Another episode of the Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And as always, I'm Nick Saveri. Nikki, my boy, no, listen, man. It's good, man. Going, man. This has been great, man. Things are good, man. The show keeps rolling. You know, we're having a good time. I mean, I don't know how many people hit, keep hitting you up, but it's we. I get a lot of the like. This show is great. Like, how are you getting all these people? Like, yeah, yeah. Blown away oh. by the you know by all these guests and, but also even like the feedback we're seeing in these days. You know, through iTunes for those of you who are dropping those five star reviews, we thank you. Um, and just people who hit us up, friends and you know, family to talk to us about, you know, the format of the show. Like these are intelligent conversations. We're grateful for all that feedback, but for sure. um, yeah, it's been great. It's awesome. been great to get it from everybody. Um, they're going to be excited tonight, you know, because we have another spectacular guest that's going to be joining us. Our, our topic tonight is really going to be around what it's like working in government. Um, I could think of nobody better of what we saw over the last, you know, four to five years in government. Obviously, the ratings in, in news are soaring through the roof, right? Because 
of the person who was president prior to this, right? And so well, I could think of nobody better than somebody that worked for the administration and Olivia Troy. She was a former Department of Homeland Security official. Uh, she worked as a special advisor on the coronavirus task force uh, under Vice President Pence. And obviously she got ousted or left, you know, depending upon who you talk to. We're going to ask her that tonight. Um, back in September of 2020, she didn't like the direction of the way the task force was going. But I'm interested to get her take on a lot of different things because to somebody who uh, works on the outside, right? And I work in a different industry. So do you, Nick, what's it mm -hmm. like actually working in the government? Like what's it like reporting to the number two person, you know, in America uh, for all intensive purposes, you know, and what is it like? She's worked on a lot of counterterrorism. She's been a DHS for, you know, four or five years. Uh, she worked at DNI before that with Department of National Intelligence. So, it's going to be great to get her perspective on a lot of the different things that take place behind the scenes uh, working in government. So we're really excited to have Olivia with us tonight. Yeah, we've and we've had you know conversations with other folks in government positions before. You know, for those of you yeah. who checked out the Mike Hill show, which I imagine all of you, Mike talked yeah. about his role um, at the NSA. Uh, right. Naveed, you know, coming to us, you know, from working uh, with the FBI, also a naval intelligence officer, Reggie Love, you know, former body man to President Obama and all the time he spent in on the campaign, but most importantly in the White House. Yeah. You know, so we've been hearing these different perspectives on working in government. Olivia tonight brings us a really fresh perspective because she's been working with his previous administration. You know, everyone else previously had spent stints, you know, in the past. We're talking right. to someone who is recently not too far away recently removed from the white house yeah. what is life looking like for her now and what is the battle she's now fighting for for really the soul of the republican party that kind of is part of the other part of this conversation tonight yeah no that's that's a great uh, segue because she is now the director of the republican accountability project and we're going to ask her about that tonight because it's very similar to things that you're seeing out there with the lincoln project and they've been the Republican Accountability Project has been putting up billboards in different states, thanking some of the senators, Republican senators, especially that have, you know, voted uh, during the impeachment trial. Uh, so there's a lot that goes into that because, you know, even that market is a little saturated right now. I just mentioned Lincoln Project, but there's a few others that are out there under, you know, uh, different uh, people that either worked in the Trump administration or former Republican strategists that have started these. So we're going to get her take on all of that tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm super interested also to ask her because um, we were talking about this off air, Nick, but what is it like for the president of the United States to tweet? Mm -hmm. I don't know who that person is. I've never mm -hmm. interacted with them. And, you know, you're in you're in the Oval Office. You're in the White House almost every day. That's got to be a weird feeling. You know, I, the, the CEOs of the companies that I've worked at never tweeted out. I don't know Mike Leon. So <laughs> nor, nor do they. But mm -hmm. it's got to be a weird feeling to see that. And I know she did a lot of rounds of press back in September. And it's, it's different. You know, you're doing a three or four minute segment on television. I think tonight we're going to get a lot more out of her because, you know, this podcast length format is, is perfect to really tell her story, why she wanted to work in government, what it was like those years working in the Trump administration and, and why should people trust government? You know, that's, that's a huge thing for a lot of people that are watching, listening our show, you know, there's, there's the, the doubts of, of why we should trust the government. So we're, we're super excited. Can't wait to talk to Olivia tonight. Nick, before we get into our guest for tonight, um, the episode today is presented by Clark's. Have you ever visited Clark's.com, Nick? 
visited, I've I've worn their shoes. Their shoes are fantastic. Yeah, they're they're great. They sell yeah men's shoes, uh, boots. So today's episode is presented by them. But I wanted to tell our audience a little bit about a Clark story, which began almost two hundred years ago when when Cypress and James Clark they they made a slipper from sheepskin. And at the time, it was groundbreaking. You know, it's a combination of invention and craftsmanship. And that's always remained at the heart of what Clark's does. You know, from the very beginning, Clark's has always thought differently. You know, brilliant ideas are what set Clark's apart. I, I really love their shoes. You were talking about the comfort stuff. Um, we're teaming up with Clark's and Podgo. And we're going to bring our listeners 30% off on select items, including the iconic Clark's Desert Boot. You got those, Nick, in your, in your closet there? I may, man. I got a couple of pairs. I, I see I see some in the background there. I might gotta check if one of those are Clark's Desert. There you go. 30% off select items. All you gotta do, you know it by now, folks. Podgo.co backslash Clark Clarks, excuse me, podgo.co backslash Clarks. Check it out today. 30% off on select items. All right, Nick, we teased it at the top. Joining us tonight, uh, she worked on the Department of Homeland Security under former Vice President Pence. Then she transitioned to the Coronavirus Task Force as an advisor. She now is the director of the Republican Accountability Project, and that is none other than Olivia Troy. Olivia, Mike Leon, Nick Savary, thanks so much for hopping out with us tonight. Thanks for having me. Olivia, uh, at the top, you know, before we get into the heavy stuff, I, I want to talk about you, your story, and your career in public service, because uh, our topic for tonight was really about working in government. But give us a little bit of background about about you, like how you got your start in government. Did you always want to work in government? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, you know, it's a mix. I think I was always sort of very politically aware and active. Um, I was very active in high school. I did that Washington, D.C. trip um, that my, you know, I had to, I don't know how many cars I had to wash to raise the funds to go on it um, because my parents couldn't afford to send me on the trip side to fundraise it. Uh, I remember that when I was a junior in high school and then got to go back to DC uh, with marching band. Cause you know, I'm from Texas and we take our marching bands really seriously down there. Uh, that's a matter of pride, um, football and marching bands is it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I just became super interested in sort of government and what was happening. And after, and during college, I remained somewhat tuned in and very active on campus and I, after graduating, um, I worked uh, in Republican campaigning and politics. I was raised with more conservative values and I worked at the Republican National Committee fresh out of college. Uh, and then 9-11 um, happened. And that's really what changed sort of my trajectory, I would say, in the career I chose to follow. Uh, and that's where I took uh, a job at the Pentagon. Um, right after 9-11, I um, became more of a counterterrorism subject matter expert throughout my career. I deployed overseas. I traveled quite a bit. I focused on the Middle East region. And then I um, spent some years at the National Counterterrorism Center. I was really driven by mission. Uh, I became a career intel officer. And uh, most recently then took an assignment at the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, and after there, I was there for about a year and a half. I got there literally right as uh, the Trump administration got elected into office after the week before. And I was there. Uh, and then the front office, um, so to speak, that's government speak. So the secretary's office, I'd worked a lot of different uh, projects on coordinating. And that's when they asked me to interview for the Homeland Security Advisory slot in the White House for the vice president. Uh, and, you know, um, as a career 
intelligence professional, um, that's really been my focus and drive, right? I think what drives me is I'm contributing to the greater good and the mission. Um, I'm very mission focused and uh, I really, you know, I, I take the security of Americans and I value human life um, seriously. I mean, that is what you know, drives me or drove me every single day. Uh, so it didn't matter the long hours or, you know, in the White House, sometimes you can work. I had the, uh, I would say the emerging events and current events portfolios. So I dealt with natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, all of that. And I dealt with mass shootings as well. And I'll say that the mass shootings were some of the hardest ones because, you know, I knew that someone had lost their loved one that day, their child, their spouse, their family member, um, and they were always very hard. And I was a person on call 24 hours a day while I was on staff. Um, and then obviously the pandemic hits and it was a very challenging situation with this virus and a lot of unknowns with it. Um, but I got to work very closely with medical experts and scientific experts like Dr. Fauci, you know, and, and Dr. Burks and others. Uh, and it was a very challenging time, I will say, during the middle of a crisis and a pandemic that continues on today. Yeah, well, thank you for your service before Nick jumps in here. I really appreciate that. I'm thinking about, actually thinking about the recent events in January and, you know, the, the role that you played at DHS and specifically your background in counterterrorism. From your vantage point, you know, thinking about the events on January 6th, um, moving forward, would you consider some of the, or if not the biggest threat facing, facing our country? I certainly think that domestic terrorism has been on the rise uh, for several years now. And I think the threat of, you know, extremists uh, here in the homeland, I know we've, you know, we've really focused overseas and on the global war on terror post 9-11. And I think we've made a lot of progress and headway there in terms of how we look at the problem, how we screen and vet people um, and tracking these kind of global networks, but the homegrown uh, radicalization that we're seeing happen on our own home soil is dangerous, and it's a harder it's a it's a harder problem, I would say, and a bigger challenge, because you're going to have to look at it from a lens of what causes radicalization, radicalization, where does it emerge, um, how these networks, you know, and these individuals are being recruited and radicalized, and all the challenges that come with that, you know, on where they're talking to each other um, on social media. You deal with all sorts of First Amendment rights and freedom of speech when you start to look at that too. So it's really a complex problem. And I would say the other challenge right now is really the threat of disinformation that is out there. And that I think is a big contributor to what, things like the QAnon movement, um, some of the you know more disinformation campaigns on the pandemic that still, still create division and confusion and danger to the American public, I think still today in terms of COVID and the vaccines and all of that. And I think it's a challenge that I think we're gonna be facing uh, for years to come. As a follow-up question to that, you mentioned about um, disinformation. <clears throat> I'm glad you did. Because in a country where our first amendment is, the, is you know, the right to free speech, how do we reconcile that um, that philosophy, that that law, really, as it relates to freedom of speech, to countering disinformation, because at a federal level, it would appear to be pretty challenging to put any restrictions there. Just from your vantage point, where do you see the opportunity with a new administration to to tackle disinformation at the federal level? 
Yeah, it's certainly not an easy task. Um, I think that the Biden administration certainly has her hands full, but there are really ways to kind of do the messaging on it. Um, and I would say some of the most powerful messaging you can do is by people who have found themselves sort of taken in by some of these movements who realize what they're in, who leave these movements, and then I think speak truth to power, I would say. And I think it's important to have these people come forward because I think within these movements, it's always, it's always, I think, best to have someone who has been in that situation and has gone through the process uh, speak to these populations directly at times and kind of diffuse some of these myths. And you see this, you know, we look at this radicalization problem overseas from the same lens where you kind of try to address these groups, you kind of try to embrace them into back into society. And a lot of these people, you know, it's kind of like going into the fringes. There's either grievances, they're feeling isolated, or it's really um, a tough, you know, thing to counter when it comes to propaganda and networks that are feeding this one-sided, very specifically scoped narrative. And it is hard. Uh, you know, we we value free speech. I, I value free speech. Um, I'm very proud to be in America where we have that. But there's a difference between, I would say, free speech and speech that is hateful, that incites violence, that is dangerous also in terms of information that could cause harm, harm to someone, right? Like misinformation on COVID, on the vaccine, when it, which is so critical, right? And we know that the facts are there. It's the truth laying that out. And I think honestly, transparency can go a long way with the administration and federal government on explaining why certain actions are being taken. I think in the past, we've left a pattern, unfortunately, I would say under the previous administration where there was a lack of transparency and it left, it sowed a lot of doubt. And when you instill sort of these narratives where you instill doubt in the minds of people with a certain political agenda, you're really creating a legacy of people who are gonna doubt everything, right? And who are gonna always, uh, there's gonna be a hesitancy there. And I certainly think that we're in a situation right now where that legacy is living on today, where I think President Biden is having to counter a lot of that, um, especially as you see on the pa pandemic. And um, I think he'll continue to face that on other domestic threats. Olivia, it's a perfect transition because, you know, obviously a lot of people know you from the task force when you did the round of interviews in September and October um, after you left. Can you take our audience a little bit through what your actual role as an advisor was on the task force? What were you doing day to day, the interactions you had with Dr. Burks and, and Dr. Fauci? Uh, take our audience a little bit through what, what you were doing to try to at least help the American people. Yeah, uh, so, you know, Dr. Brooks and I, we worked very, very close together. I was on the task force from day one uh, in January. And I spent a lot of hours sort of with the inner agency, as we call it in US government, that's US government speaker. Everybody has a very senior person at the table in these meetings or cabinet level or deputy secretary, cap deputy cabinet level, who is really grappling with this issue. And so I served um, once vice president, you know, I served as sort of like the liaison to vice president Pence. I was his advisor. I covered these meetings. I would brief him regularly on what was developing and how things were progressing and the threat of this virus and the fact that the threat was very real. As uh, time went on, you saw Vice President Pence was appointed the lead of the task force in late February. And that, you know, made my, my job even harder, I'm not gonna lie. I became 
the main coordinator for agendas. I coordinated with the main principals like Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci. We met every single day. I was in late night phone calls with uh, the CDC and a lot of the main top level experts there. I talked to the FDA and Dr. Hahn and a lot of it was also emergency coordination on what were we gonna do with these Americans that were stuck overseas uh, when the lockdowns began? What, how are we gonna evacuate Americans from cute cruise ships? And when we did that, knowing quite honestly and frankly that these were sitting petri, dish, petri dishes as I call them, right? Where we really wanted to get Americans evacuated as soon as possible because the longer they stayed on these ships, the more dangerous it was for their health and well-being because this virus was so contagious and there were so many unknowns with it that we had to move swiftly. And so a lot of that is just trying to negotiate what we're going to do, how we evacuate them and sort of keep the trains running, so to speak. And then, you know, honestly, I, I drafted a lot of the vice president's remarks at the very beginning. You'll remember the briefings where he was very factual. Uh, they were very serious. There was a tone of severity there um, and acknowledgement that this was not going to be an easy thing that we were grappling with. And I saw Vice President Pence really be challenged, you know, at times. And it was a, an easy situation for any of us who were on that task force. And it obviously became even harder with um, some significant political dynamics that really, really under, would undermine at times decisions being made in the room that we knew were important. Uh, guidelines that needed to put, be pushed out because we knew that it was going to affect uh, the spread of the virus and curbing the spread of the virus. And you see us put out the guidance on wearing in the mask, the social distancing, right? We do the 15 days to curb the spread and then it became another 30 days. Like we saw a decline in cases at that time. We still had a chance against the virus and that's why it was done. But I will say that when you have I would say undermining or alternative messaging happening in terms on mask wearing and things like that. It's really just a detriment uh, to such a response because you're creating doubt and confusion. And you see that sort of start to wear on the American public and you see the public messaging kind of override uh, the principals on the task force that are actually trying to be factual in what they're, they're communi communicating. You know, like Dr. Fauci, who is trying to state the severity and what is happening here, the data and the science was there, trying to warn people. But then at times, you know, he wasn't able to speak freely because it didn't, wasn't in line with the political message. And for me, it was, it was challenging because you knew that every day that went on, people were going to, the virus was gonna spread, people were going to continue to suffer and people were going to, going to die. And, you know, that's not lost on me. Uh, now that we're, you know, passing 500,000 deaths uh, related to COVID, uh, the science is always there. Uh, it's just very hard to know that it didn't have to be this way and it could have been prevented. As we're talking about um, your time on the task force, you know, thinking about you moving on from it. And you've mentioned over the last few minutes, some of the sort of pieces that may have led to that. But what for you was the tipping point that solidified your decision that this couldn't be the place you could be anymore as it related to fighting the virus or, or dealing with it at any political or any uh, government position level? You know, there were a, a number of events that I was very uncomfortable with, but certainly it got to the point where it, sometimes I think that you need to really, especially for me, a national security practitioner who has really focused on, on the safety and security of Americans. And I think that 
you know, there were certainly no doubt um, any shortage of moral dilemmas that I faced in my tenure and in the role. But at some point I sat down and you've got to think about, are you complicit? Are you enabling, or are you still making a difference? And knowing that you can go home and look yourself in the mirror and say, I did everything I could today uh, to do whatever I could to help on this fight against this crisis. And at some point, the political dynamic was such that I knew that I was, it, I wasn't going to be able to co- overcome some of these obstacles, right? We're talking like I would write remarks with factual information in it. The remarks were changed unbeknownst to me. The vice president would get him on his desk. He turned to me and asked me what happened. And I was left defending the indefensible, right? Because I had no idea why this kept happening to me. And it was clearly a situation where uh, facts no longer mattered. And it was really the focus was on a campaign and on a, on election. And look, I'm, I'm you know, I, I get it. It's, uh, you know, we're a free democracy and elections do matter. But in a situation like this, when it comes to human life and what was happening here for me, um, you know, as a career person who's focused on keeping people safe, uh, yeah, there comes, you know, you have to have your red lines and say, I'm not okay with this. Like, I, I can't do this anymore in this way where I can't even help in this situation. And I'm watching the CDC and I'm watching guidelines be changed by people that have, do not have medical degrees, right? They're not scientific experts. They don't have the data. They're changing things behind the scenes. They're bullying the scientists or bullying doctors they're not letting them speak freely and it becomes a very toxic situation. Um, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, the day of Lafayette square, that was a really hard day for me. Um, what happened that day due to, of the clearing of the people that were there, they were peacefully protesting and that day really wore on me because I'm a, I'm a person of faith and it was, it was hard to watch uh, people uh, people were really hurt that day. They were cleared out. I had been walking around outside and I had seen moms protesting with signs peacefully with their children. And I kept thinking to myself, what happened to them? Were they safe that night? I mean, it, how did this all play out? And I remember seeing uh, President Trump at the time, you know, holding that Bible at St. John's Church, a church that I have visited, a landmark. And the hypocrisy of that moment was so infuriating and upsetting uh, because I knew that it was just done for a photo op with the law and order narrative. And I knew what was going on behind the scenes. And it was, uh, that was very, it was hard to come back from that in the days that would come afterwards, given everything that I was facing on the task force, watching what was being said, watching the public information being put out there that was frankly, not, not factual, not honest and transparent, knowing what was to come. And then watching that moment, I think it was a combination of all those things where you start to say, like, I, I can't do this anymore. Olivia, uh, now you work, I mentioned it at the top, as the director of the accountability project, the GOP accountability project. Tell us a little bit about that organization, because, you know, Nick and I were talking before you came on air of you're seeing a lot of these during the election cycle, Lincoln Project was started. Um, 
So what is it that that your company is doing? I know you guys have done a lot of the billboards for different senators in different states, thanking them for their votes on the impeachment trial. But what else are, is the accountability project doing? Well, so the Republican Accountability Project launched in um, mid-January, on January 12th. It was launched uh, right as the impeachment proceedings were happening after January 6th, after what happened in the insurrection that day. Uh, really, it was it's twofold. Um, one is to support uh, the Republicans, I would say the few and far between Republicans right now, that really took a stand to, um, you know, and, and took a stand for their oath to the Constitution and for our country, who said this is not okay, who voted for impeachment or who voted for the conviction during the trial of Donald Trump and the aftermath of everything that happened, who did not, you know, they were not part of the main enablers who were talking about the stolen election, an election that was fair and legitimate um, and undermining that. And so it's twofold it's to support, you know, people like Liz Cheney, people like Adam Kinzinger, um, people like Lisa Murkowski, who will face a difficult primary likely, right? She is actually, Senator Murkowski is up for re-election in 2022. Uh, and we've heard uh, the rhetoric from Donald Trump and his son and his family about how they'll be back in the primaries, how the MAGA machine is coming for them. And we plan to have their backs. We'll be there to support them as they face these elections in hope of pushing back against some of these more extreme factions, I would say, uh, in the Republican Party that I think subscribe more to Trump Trumpism than really true conservative values. And then the second, fold, second part of the project is really um, to sort of remind voters of what some of these main Republican enablers of the big lie, you know, about the election, about voter fraud around the election, which has been proven in lawsuits and cases and courts that it is, you know, it's not factually correct, uh, that all of this is not true. And um, to hold those people accountable for what they did. You know, they lied to the American people. They have remained, they do sometimes at times double down on the line, they continue to lie today. And they lie to their constituents about this. And all of that is dangerous fundamentally because it leads to things like January 6th. You know, when you have a, a president in office at the time who is using such violent language and rhetoric and insightful and urging people to go fight and take it back. And you have other Republicans, you know, he didn't do this on his own. He had other Republican elected officials who were going along with it. And so, you know, we've, we've done, you know, several campaigns now. We've done billboards for people like Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, uh, Representative Gohmert, um, Matt Gates, and others. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, whom, as you've seen right now, is a uh, I would say, unfortunately, a very prominent face of the party, someone who is a QAnon supporter who says a bunch of uh, baseless things that are really offensive, uh, things about school shootings, which I'm sure you all are familiar with. Those things are hurtful to the parents who have lived that, who have suffered grief, who have suffered loss. You know, 9-11, to me, that's not lost on me. So our, our, our purpose is really to kind of remind the voters of what's happened because, you know, Americans, and sometimes I'll say voters, unfortunately, we have a short-term memory. And so, you know, as we go forward, we want to remind people of who their elected officials are, 
hold these people accountable and remind them and say, is that really who you want representing you? Is that really someone, you know, for all the Republicans or all the moderate Republicans, is that really who you want to be the face of the Republican party? Is that really the beliefs? Are those the values that you really subscribe to? Because I personally think that Americans deserve better than that. Um, And I think, you know, the party's hurting right now and people are starting to leave in droves because they don't believe in this, right? They don't want any part of this. And so I think it's going to be a really hard time for the party, but uh, you know, we're going to be here. Nick, today's episode of the podcast is presented by Podgo. Nick, funny question. Do you know what Podgo is? <laughs> They're the reason we get paid, man. I'm very familiar <laughs> with Podgo. <laughs> yeah, we, Podgo, folks, is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters a flat rate for ad space. You always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. All you got to do is apply today to become a member. Uh, Nick, what's the website? Well, give me the URL real quick for the people. Just podgo.co, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. That's it. Right away, you become a member today. Be sure to add that you heard about this. You heard about Podgo and put in, can we please talk in that section of the application? Yeah, as you mentioned, the the, the split, you know, a recent poll came out <clears throat> has at about 46% of Republicans wouldn't leave the GOP to um, if Trump were to start a third party. Um you're, we're talking about you know the seven uh, Republican senators who voted for the impeachment, you know, as opposed to the forty-three. Um, do you see the accountability project possibly backing moderate Republicans in an effort to fight back against the Josh Hawleys, the Ted Cruz's, and those folks? Because you just mentioned a moment ago that the flip side may happen. You know, Murkowski as a as a senator, uh, Pat. I'm in Pennsylvania, so Pat Toomey is obviously stepping down, but that puts Pennsylvania back into play for both Democrats, Republicans, and possibly a third um, party leaning far right. Um, but but do you see the accountability project getting in, involved at the electorate level about trying to combat some of these uh, far right Republicans who, to your words, are not really representative of the value of the GOP, or at least the GOP that you stand behind? I certainly think, you know, we're going to be evaluating and assessing, but really the point is really to back uh, people who are either moderate, center right, or who are actual conservatives, right, who are taking a stand. I mean, we certainly hope to take a stand against what I would say the more mega leaning candidates um, and these extreme sort of movements that exist within the party. You know, I would say right now, if you look at the CPAC agenda, uh, which actually breaks my heart that they have moved it down to Florida because I think about it being a COVID super spreader event because I can't help but look at it from that lens, right? And know that people are hurting and you have a mass gathering of people. When you look at that agenda, it's like Matthew Gates, it's uh, Lauren Boebert, Ted Cruz. Uh, I mean, I think that says it all. Um, you know, I think CPAC for a long time has sort of been more, more of the, uh, more, more of a different breed all by itself. But, you know, it used to be a time, there used to be a time when Mitt Romney would speak at it. Right. And, uh, you know, I've got to say, um, you know, when I saw the news about Mike Pence saying he's not going to speak at it, I actually thought to myself, well, why would he? I don't think he's welcome there. Um, And also, I would worry about his safety going there. Right. These are the same people who uh, stood by and uh, didn't take a stand after Mike Pence's life was 
put in danger on January 6th, right? At the end of the day, they pretty much told the world that they're okay with it. You know, on this platform, you know, Olivia, you said something which um, I wanted to give some space to right now. You mentioned about conservatives, like true conservatives, those that you that you back. Um, Can you just take a moment? What do you define as conservatism? Like what? Because I think oftentimes we we throw these words around liberals, conservatives and whatnot. Just for a literacy moment for our listeners. What do you define as conservative? What is the what what do you consider that? You know, it's no, no doubt that I've been, you know, when I subscribed to Republican beliefs and those are the ideals that I was raised with, I was raised with more of like the party of, of Lincoln, really, and the party of McCain, people who were, I think, um, yeah, we do believe in small government. We, and when, when government gets involved, we believe it's a local level and we do believe, you know, in trade. I believe in America. I do think, you know, I would at this point, I guess, would call myself a radical centrist. Right. Where, um, you know, I think that entrepreneurship is good. I believe in the American dream and things like that. Um, But I'll tell you, I don't subscribe and don't believe to immigrants being bad. And I don't believe in the emerging border crisis that is spun in one very, very spun narrative, one sided. Right. I mean, I. I don't, I I think we've got a serious problem in terms of, you know, having an open dialogue about race in our country. I don't subscribe to these, I would say, more racist rhetoric that we've seen and the more extremism. I mean, my my parents were immigrants, right? I, um, yeah, I'm a person of faith. Um, I'm, you know, I'm Catholic. And I certainly, you know, kind of look at what's happened with the party. And to me, it's really important to walk the talk and not, you know, claim to be for Christian principles. uh, And to be honest, to basically live in hypocrisy, right? You can't, you can't sit there and claim to be all these things, but your actions uh, speak for themselves and um, do anything but represent supporting these types of people, right? You see it when, you know, we saw it with the refugee crisis, right? We saw the Stephen Millers of the world. They wanted that population drop to zero. I don't believe in that. I, you know, there's a safe way, there's a way to do it. I realize we're in a crisis, but it doesn't mean drop it to zero. I think we need to fix the system, I believe, in immigration. And that is a very challenging thing that we have faced for a very long time in our country. Right? On both sides, like I will say on Republicans and Democrats, we struggle with figuring out immigration form. And I'm glad that President Biden is trying to figure out how we actually come together and figure this problem out. Olivia, um, I, I think about you. I think about Miles Taylor. We were talking about this before you came on. Uh, I don't remember leaving a job and the and my CEO saying, I don't know who Mike Leon is. I never he never worked here. He was a never this, that. Um, so for me, it's a two-part question because it's is what is that feeling like seeing somebody discredit you, even Miles's example, is somebody, you know, that worked in the administration get discredited. But then it's also, why should people trust government? Like going forward, you know, Biden is trying to restore credibility, like you mentioned, and it's an uphill battle. Is is Trump an outlier or was or was there something there 
that he kind of poked at, and now you have seen this formation over time? Well, I certainly think that, you know, I think Joe Biden has a difficult scenario on his hands because um, the trust has been eroded, especially across the U.S. government, right? You're talking to, you know, like I, I saw a lot of different examples of um, Donald Trump undermining and discrediting the national security community over and over, right? Anybody who spoke or said something that wasn't in line with what he wanted or that would come forward and take and tell the truth, uh, whether it be Russian interference or anything like that, or what happened to Ukraine, you immediately get discredited. And he does this not only to the national security community, but he later does that during the COVID pandemic, where he goes out of his way to discredit the public health community, right? Because they're just being factual. Uh, that's what these communities operate on is science and information. And I think, you know, it's, it was hard as a person who has been in the federal government. There are, uh, you know, it checks and balances and these institutions exist for a reason. They're full of subject matter experts, people who have dedicated their entire careers um, to a lot of these things. And they're certainly, you know, the talent pool is there to help and support regardless of who is actually in office. That is, the whole point of these institutions, right? They're the institutional memory. Um, they can serve to uh, implement executive orders as needed. And, uh, you know, it was really hurtful, I will say, uh, when the deep state narratives started and sort of um, what it felt like to have spent, you know, for me, almost 20 years serving in public service um, for, for such a time and suddenly be labeled that way because, nothing that I ever did in that entire time, whether it was a Republican or Democrat in office, would it lead anyone to believe that I didn't, I wasn't committed um, to doing my job and doing well. Now, is there a bureaucracy? Absolutely. Right. I mean, there's bureaucracy, I would say in every organization to a certain extent, including in the private sector, I would say, but yes. And do things sometimes move slower? Yes. But um, but I don't think that's a reason to give up on public service because it matters, right? These are you know, career, these are your military service members too, right? They're part of that community. These are your intelligence officers who deploy overseas, who serve, um, and not, oftentimes very dangerous environments. And every time something hurtful and undermining was said publicly about them, I always thought about that. I thought about you know, these people serving overseas. I thought about the dangers that they were facing, the fact that they were putting their lives at risk. And it's hard to do that when, you know, you look back and you look at the homeland, you look at the country and you have a whole population out there who is calling you the swamp because you're part of it or draining it or the deep state, right? I mean, I think that that is, that is fundamentally, it, it's not good. For America, it's not good for our country. It's a sad day. Olivia, it's been such a treat having you on tonight. Um, Republican Accountability Project. You can check it out at accountability.gop. Uh, she's a former Department of Homeland Security official. Like I mentioned, she worked on the coronavirus task force. Um, continued success to you, Olivia, and everything that you keep doing. Keep fighting the good fight. We thank you so much for your service and thank you for coming on tonight. Thank you for having me. 
All right. That was Olivia Troy. Uh, she was fantastic. You know, we say it yep. all the time, but she was really great. Uh, former Department of Homeland Security official. She worked under Vice President Pence on the task force uh, accountability.gop. She is now the director of the Republican Accountability Project and the work that they're doing. Um, Nick, I, I, there was so much with Olivia, you know, because I, I didn't realize this 20 years in government. Right. You're working at, you know, at DNI, at DHS. Um, and counterterrorism, like important stuff, man. And then to see what happened to her over the last three or four years, like she mentioned, you know, the transition of like, I can't, I would write down facts on a piece of paper and somebody would edit that for the vice president's speech. Like that is crazy to me, man. And like, I just, some of the things that she talked about there, uh, we asked her at the end about trusting in government. You asked her about defining conservatism. Um, I just thought there was so much, what'd you make of the interview with, with, with Olivia? Just awesome. I mean, it's funny. I mean, it, it almost sounds trite at this point because we talk to so many amazing guests every time we, you know, we, you know, we're post or post debriefing on all this stuff. Right. We're blown away. We're blown away by everyone's authenticity, what insight they bring to this dialogue and how they expand the space. You know, like what you know, you and I think about in these cases, you know, these folks come on and really blow it up and give us a lot more context and a lot more knowledge, which hopefully all of our viewers and listeners are sort of digesting as well. So, uh, but I really like where she took us. I mean, she really got it to the heart of, you know, what is the battle for the soul of the Republican Party look like? Right. You know, and where and what is the battle she's fighting? You know, we you know we talked on this episode about the accountability project, but you know, we've obviously seen the Lincoln project. I mean, there's so many different movements for the GOP trying to maintain some you know moderate stance. Right. Um, and she just tells a great story of how that happens, how she got to that place, her work at the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and it all just flowed really well. It's just an awesome conversation, man. We could have easily just doubled that time but you know that's yeah, um, seriously that's how it goes that's why the podcasts are great <laughs> folks because then you can yeah. just make it into a part two olivia was no doubt fantastic um like i said accountability.gop check check out all the work that they're doing we're so thankful for her coming on for this show as always youtube hit subscribe right now nick smashing the button below uh you can check us out apple spotify google stitcher uh we're everywhere hit subscribe follow leave us a comment uh, wherever comments are available. As always, I'm Mike Leon. I am Nick Saveri. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll see you next time. Later. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 